0: Well, good morning. My name is Drew, and it is such a joy to get to be with you guys. Um, I, for those who don't know me, I live in Waco with my wife, Bethany. We have four kids and a golden doodle. And so I made the drive up this morning and always just love getting to spend time with Antioch Dallas. You know, just even walking in, I can see the, the love, the warmth, the joy you guys have and worshiping with you. It's a special thing here. So thanks for letting me share some time with you this morning. I'm excited to go through the word of God together. Well, um, I serve with Antioch, as Joe said, and I have now, I think I actually did the math, I've been on staff in some form or fashion with Antioch more than 20 years, which makes me feel a lot older than I really am. And I currently work with Antioch Ministries International, which is our collective um, church planting arm through the Antioch movement. And today we have about 47 churches in the United States 106 teams serving internationally full-time and that's about almost 300 missionaries and that's our collective witness so thank you guys for your part in that i know so many of you you give um, so generously both to the church but also to missionaries and have supported that and in, in a variety of ways and man we're just so grateful Uh, It's fun here being in Antioch, Dallas, and and for those who maybe are newer, there's a really cool legacy in this church. Um, You may not know this, but there are churches that have been planted from Antioch, Dallas, and then granddaughter churches planted from Antioch, Dallas, and I don't even know how many missionaries have been sent out. So just as you guys are impacting this community and this city, there's a heritage from this house all over the world that you're a part of. So thank you for pressing into Jesus and your prayers. So cool to be with you this morning. Now, one of the fun things with my job is I also get to visit our brand new churches. And just to kick things off with a little testimony, a couple weeks ago, I was at Antioch, Miami, which just launched this past summer. And this this is fun. They started their church with a prayer room. So they, over the summer, they committed to praying 40 hours a week because they wanted that to be the foundation of this new church. Isn't that cool? So they just sacrificed, they pressed in, they prayed like crazy. It's like, God, if you're not here, if you're not moving, we don't have anything to offer. So then coming out of the prayer room, they kept going with prayer. I don't know if it's 40 hours, but still a lot. They started a discipleship school because they wanted to make sure it was the values of the kingdom that were at the foundation of the church. They sent their discipleship school to Columbia, where they started a church before they even fully launched their church in Miami. And then I got to be with them on the very last night of their training school as they're kind of turning the corner to get, um, you know, get things up and running in Miami itself. And so we're, we're meeting and they meet in this part of town called Wynwood, which is the artistic, bars, young adults, hipster neighborhood of Miami. And they're meeting right next door to a yoga studio. And I, there's not a lot of churches in this part of town, but that's just where they felt like God called them to be. So we're, we're having our time of worship and there's, I don't know, 15 of us in the room. We're just meeting with God. It's a really cool time. And as we're worshiping, this, this gal walks to the door, this, this young adult woman, and she looked, you know, smiley. I don't know everybody in the church. So I just assumed she was on the team. But she walks in and she sits down to join in our worship. And I noticed like out of the corner of my eye, I look over and I see that she's holding a yoga mat. I was like, "Huh, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and before I even have a chance to register, one of the gals on the team goes over to her, starts praying. And as I'm, you know, I'm worshiping, but I'm kind of watching this and this woman starts weeping and I'm like, God is obviously meeting with her in some cool way. So at the end of the night, I heard the testimony. This, this lady had been in Miami for about a year and a half And by her account, she had been spiritual in her past. I have no no clue what that means. That can mean a lot of different things. She had been spiritual in her past, but was really lonely, had fallen away from that and knew that she needed community. And as she was walking by the door, she just felt compelled, like out of nowhere, you got to go in there because there's community for you through that door. So get this. She comes in, she sits down, which is an incredibly bold thing to do as a stranger, This gal comes over her, has no clue her story, feels like the Holy Spirit gives her this word for this woman that when you walked through the door, you made a choice for community. She shares it with her. The woman starts weeping, you know, like God just has her number and they, you know, followed up and integrating her in the life of the church. Like, isn't that cool? Like we didn't do anything. We just were there. And, you know, I was thinking about that. And to me, it reminds me the reality that people are hungry for Jesus, Like this is a neighborhood you would not look for a move of God, but this is a neighborhood where God is moving. And I'm sitting there thinking like, how much do I miss? Because I forget the reality that God is at work. Even when I'm tired, even when I'm distracted, God is still moving in that moment. And I am just convinced that we are in the front end of a move of God in our nation, And I know that may not be what the news tells you, but I see it. Whether it's my eyes of sight or my eyes of faith, I can't quite tell. But God is moving if we'll have eyes to see it. And it's in neighborhoods like that, but maybe it's also your neighborhood, your classroom, your workplace. God is on the move. And that really ties into our topic this morning as we go through the five circles of a healthy church. uh, Something I've been meditating on a lot the last couple years is differentiating between what God is doing and what he's calling me to do. God is the one who brings life. God is the one who brings revival. God is the one who brings breakthrough. But then he invites me into some ways of living, ways that I can posture my heart before God so that I'm ready for what he's wanting to do. And I think that's what's at the heart of the five circles of a healthy church is how do we posture our lives? Not because we can bring the breakthrough, but we're, we're making ourselves ready so that God shows up and he ultimately brings his transformation. Amen. And so this was introduced a couple weeks ago, but just it's worth repeating again, what are the five circles of a healthy church? And for us in the Antioch movement, this is a pattern of how to live, how to do church together. And let me read them off for you. First, it's you and Jesus. It's your devotional life with God. Second, it's life on life discipleship. Third, it's believers gathered house to house. And in most of our churches, we call that life group. Fourth, it's the church gathered exactly what we're doing right now and more. It's when we gather together as the people of God. And then lastly, it's our witness in the world. And that's every single one of you being open and attentive for how God is wanting to move through you. And what we believe with this is that it's not just one of these, but when we embrace all of these, that we get to walk in a greater measure of what it means to follow Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to drill into that second circle, which is life-on-life life discipleship. And to kick that off, as you guys have been doing, I'd love to invite um, Brett up here, and he's going to read our text this morning, which is Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. It's going to be on the screen, but would love it if you want to pull out your Bible or your phone and read along as well. Thank you, Drew. Okay, again, Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20 says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee... To the very end of the age. This is God's word. Lord, pray for us. Jesus, we come into your presence this morning, and we ask that you'd speak to us through your word. But I pray that for each one of us, your Holy Spirit would let the word of God come alive in our hearts. You'd lead us in the way you've called us to go. And Lord, as best we can, we submit our hearts to you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I look at those five circles of church, I don't know about you, but the other four, if today we're talking about life on life discipleship, the other four are easiest for me to wrap my head around. It's like, okay, my, my life with God. So I'm going to spend time with God every day. I'm going to be a part of a life group. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to find some way to be missional in my life. But then you get to this one life on life discipleship. And what exactly does that mean? I won't do a show of hands, but just from years of pastoral ministry, I think this one confuses people the most. Like, what exactly are we being called to? Is this accountability? Is this mentoring? Like, are you gonna go find, you know, some Jesus following equivalent of Yoda? Like, is that what discipleship is? Is it a series of classes? Is it, is it you learning more about the faith? Like, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about the concept of life-on-life life discipleship? So it's a bit confusing, now, now the challenge, as you read in our passage right now, discipleship maybe is a bit confusing, and it's also a big deal. This is the ministry of Jesus. It's how he chose to live his three years of ministry on this earth. And I'm going to talk about that here in a second. And so that, that's probably pretty important. And if that wasn't enough, it's also what he commanded his church to do as he's going back up into heaven. So it's something that we have to take seriously as followers of God, even if it's not quite as easy to wrap our heads around. And so we'll we'll get into that. I, I wanna unpack maybe what is discipleship or how do we live that out as a community? However, I don't think our primary problem this morning is just that it's confusing. I think that maybe is a surface level issue for us to deal with. But my gut, if I could get honest with each person in this room, The bigger issue that we run into when we want to embrace what it means to engage in life-on-life discipleship is that most of us are already pretty tired and pretty overwhelmed. And when we think about the idea of life-on-life discipleship, it just sounds like a very overwhelming thing to add on top of our life. Can anyone else relate? Now, my wife and I are four kids. Our youngest is seven. Our oldest is 13. We actually had a birthday party for my second oldest daughter turned 12 yesterday. So that was a lot of fun. But I remember back, there was there was a season of time in the Stedman household where we had a child age zero, age one, and age two at the same time. My oldest daughter was potty trained the week my third daughter was born. I almost had three in diapers. Like I I I just think back on that and I'm like, you know, just showing up to church felt like the greatest win of our week, and sometimes we didn't win, you know? And Uh, the life group. I I have led a life group before that had 20 something children under the age of seven. We had a multi-site life group to make it work. You know, now we're out of those kind of baby years, but now we have (laughs) some cheers. I don't even know how to respond. Uh, Now we have all the sports games. Now we have like, life is busy. It's overwhelming, right? And you have these things, you're like, okay, I I doubt you're here resisting the idea of life-on-life discipleship. I bet most people in this room would acknowledge mentally, that's a good idea. I'm just tired. I don't know how to make it fit. And then maybe on a deeper level, I'm already giving all I have to give. So what else am I being called to do? And my prayer this morning, my hope this morning, is that A bunch of people that are already pretty tired and overwhelmed showing up to church don't leave with the message of going and do more because I don't know that that's the answer to a life that's overwhelmed. And for you, maybe it's not babies at home. Maybe it's demands of your job and Dallas traffic and relationships you're responsible for. Maybe it's just stuff going on in your own life. But I bet the majority experience in this house today is we already feel pretty full. And when we look and in the back of your mind, consider the life of Jesus and what it means to do life-on-life life discipleship, it's hard to see how that can fit in the life that I already have. And so here's my invitation this morning. First of all, I believe that the ways of God lead us to life. And so even if your first feeling is I'm overwhelmed, I just wanna invite you to take a second and maybe for the next you know, 30 minutes, set that aside as best you can and just say, God, would you speak to me through your word? What does it mean that you lead us into the way of life? And I have a hunch, if we can do that, that God will end up speaking to you how his word speaks to your situation in a way that is hope-filled and alive. And ultimately, if you leave this morning, I don't want you to leave with the sense of guilt that you're not doing enough. I've always found how I know the conviction of the Holy Spirit is I always feel hope when I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit. I never feel condemnation. And so whatever you take away from this message, and especially if you're feeling overwhelmed, let it be a word of hope this morning, not a word of condemnation. But I don't want to back off of preaching what Jesus gave us at the same time. Sometimes we need to be called upward, even amid the messiness and the busyness of our life. And somewhere in that, I just am going to trust the Lord's going to translate that in a way that makes sense for us. Does that sound good? Okay. Okay. I wanna take some time here and we're gonna go back through our passage and we're gonna do a couple verses at a time just to see if we can get a handle on what does it mean for us to live life on life discipleship. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Uh, I'm not gonna have the rest of this on the screen. You can also scroll in your phone to your Bible. No one's gonna check what you're looking at. So uh, just, just church integrity this morning that it's the Bible. Let's start off here. You know, each gospel story the author has a theme that they're illustrating to highlight who Jesus is. I heard somebody explain it one time. It's as though there were four painters painting a portrait of the same person. And that's what we get with the four gospels. It's the same person. It's the same story, but it's a different theme that shows us a different element of who God is and how God is revealed to us. So for Matthew, what he's showing us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel and for the sake of the nations. It's a big deal for Matthew. And he's, he's demonstrating to us that in the person of Jesus, all of God's, all of God's plans for humanity, they're like coming together so that forever, God will dwell with us, people from every tribe, tongue, language and nation. It's the coolest story. And once you understand what Matthew is speaking to us, there's a lot of really neat details that start to jump out to you from the Gospel of Matthew. So one of them is right here at the beginning. It says that the 11 disciples were called to Galilee, where to the mountain where Jesus had called them to go. Matthew makes a big deal about mountains in his book. And I know this might seem a little random, but just bear with me. In in the Jewish scriptures, a mountain is, is signified in Mount Sinai, which is probably one of the most important parts of the Old Testament, because it was on Mount Sinai that God gave his law to Moses, It was on Mount Sinai that God revealed himself to Moses, and it was on Mount Sinai that God commissioned the people of Israel to go into the land of promise. All right, you tracking? So if you read Matthew, what you notice in Matthew chapter 5 is that it was on the mountain that Jesus preached his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he explained to his people the words of God once again, only this time not through the mouthpiece of Moses, but through God himself. And it was on the Mount of transfiguration that God revealed himself to Israel once again. Only this time, it was not just his back, but it was the person of Jesus in his glorified body where his disciples saw God as he really is. And this time in our passage right now, it was on the mountain where God once again commissioned his people into his promise. Only this time it was not to a piece of physical land, but it was to take his gospel into every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Right here, it's like the culmination of God's purposes are all coming together. And the mountain, is just one little symbol of how this story weaves together. Like, I just love it. <laughs> I'm just so excited about it, uh, of how the scripture all comes together and tells this incredible story. And it's the story of our life. It's like God's big cosmic purposes. And it's you and it's me. And so I'm thinking of this giant story. And then I'm thinking about the ministry of Jesus. And what blows me away is that Jesus is on earth to accomplish God's purpose. And Matthew, you know, the, the great commission is that is the, the, the apex of all of God's purposes, is kind of being revealed. It pulls the whole book together. And I'm thinking of this. And what strikes me is the way that Jesus lived his years of earthly ministry, his three years of public ministry, and how strange it is, honestly, to me, what he would choose to do in spending his time as a part of God's earthly ministry. I'll explain it like this. A couple years ago, I did a very scary Bible study where I analyzed all the things that Jesus said yes to and all the things that Jesus said no to. And do you know what I found out? If I'm being honest, almost everything he said yes to, I would have said no to. And almost everything he said no to, I would have said yes to. Like he had a very strange way of doing his public ministry. If I put myself in his shoes and I was like, okay, God's cosmic purposes and all this really cool stuff and mountains and everything. Now I've got three years to build the foundation for a church that can endure for all generations. How would I have spent my time? Because one thing I can tell you is I would have not spent my time the way that Jesus chose to spend his. Like, like play this out with me for a second. If the solution for God's purposes was great preaching, who better to hear from than the word of God himself and in incarnate flesh? Jesus taught, he ministered, but that was not the major way that he spent his time. If the solution was revival, who better to lead a revival service than the author of life himself? <laughs> Jesus certainly ministered to people and cast out demons and healed the sick. But once again, that was not his primary way of doing ministry. What about pastoral care and caring for needs? Who better to have care for you than the chief shepherd. And he certainly cared for people, but that was not his major way of doing ministry was was providing pastoral care. What about bringing about societal change and justice? Who better to do it than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Obviously God cares about it deeply, but he did not lead a political movement during his years on earth. What did he do instead? He chose to spend his time life on life with 12 less educated, frankly, underwhelming, blue collar, mostly fishermen. Like in what world is that the way that you launch a global movement? He had every opportunity available to him and he did what is the equivalent of us going up to Gainesville, Texas, finding a truck stop, spending some time and then calling 12 people to come spend time with us. I would not have thought to do that. I'm sorry, Gainesville, for the shots fired, but I had to pick somewhere. (laughs) That is not the way that we think when we think of influence and change. And that is exactly the way that Jesus lived. Why? And when you think of what he called them to do, you can read about it in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, he literally went up to those people and he said, follow me. Now, I know that's kind of churchy language, like I'm following Christ, but actually in their case, it was pretty literal. Like, I'm just going to walk around and follow you. That's what they did. And that might be a little weird to us, but back at that time, this is what a Jewish rabbi would do. If they were going to teach somebody, they would invite them to come follow them. And they would literally walk in their footsteps. And the thought process is that it's not just knowledge that you're going to gain in being with me. Knowledge is part of it. There's going to be a teaching component to it. But what you're actually going to gain is that by walking behind me, you are going to learn my way of living. And that by following me, you are going to become like me. So for Jesus, what is life on life discipleship? It's the invitation to people to walk with him and to follow him. And if you're taking notes, what is a disciple? It's a lifelong follower of Jesus. That's the invitation that's given to us is will we be like those disciples who walk with him? Teaching's part of it, revival's part of it, but also daily life is part of it, of us just learning the ways of Jesus. Now, for the first disciples, this was really simple. I don't wanna say it was easy, but it was simple. They were invited to follow Jesus. But what on earth do we do 2,000 years later where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father? What does it mean for us? To follow him in this life. And I think that's where this can get complicated and confusing. So I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? You want the bad news? The bad news is that the way that you do this is necessarily related to other people helping you do it. If you want to follow Jesus, he has designed it to where we need one another to help us follow him. You want the good news is that he gave us the Holy Spirit as part of that process. He actually said, it's better for you that I go away. It's better for us. We are in a more advantageous situation than those first disciples have because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We don't get out of the fact that we need each other, but together we experience the Holy Spirit and somehow in the mystery of God, that is how we follow Jesus in this life when he's seated at the right hand of the father. So what is discipleship in our context? What is life on life discipleship? Circle two, it's one person helping another becoming a lifelong follower of Jesus. God has designed you to need other people to help you in your journey of following him. I'm not getting quite as many excited amens on that one. I said it was bad news, all right? (laughs) I'm not lying. I don't get it. I don't make the rules. I just show up, right? But that's how God has designed this. So like very practically, what does this look like for me? I find I need to have a group of two or three men in my life where I am walking closely with them and we are praying for each other. We are encouraging each other. We are known to each other. Like they know what's going on with me. I know what's going on with them. We are challenging each other. We are supporting each other and we are holding each other accountable. And as a conviction, I need that all the time. I would love to say that I leveled up in my spiritual life to the point where I don't need anything anymore. But man, if I do not have brothers in my life spurring me on, I am scared how far I can wander in a very short amount of time. I need brothers in my life to challenge me. You need sisters in your life to challenge you in your walk with God. Now, sometimes that's a larger group. Sometimes maybe it's just one other person. But I find, you know, if I'm not gonna meet with somebody, we text each other back and forth. Just what's going on? How can we pray? How can we spur each other on? For us at Antioch, typically that's connected to our life group. So you might be in a life group and the men and the women might each have a small group. Or if it's a large life group, you might actually have multiple of those small groups. You know, it's, it's not rocket science, but it's a commitment of we need each other to live this life out in Jesus. Now, I know for some people, you, you have kind of that spiritual Yoda. We're looking for the spiritual father and mother. Who's the person that's a few seasons of life ahead that can challenge me that I can learn from? That is also a need. So if you can maybe say we have brother-sister discipleship, we also have father-mother discipleship. In the context of church, that's a little harder to organize. You know, we don't often have a system for, you know, pairing everybody up. It's like matchmaker discipleship, doesn't quite work. But I do think you need it. And I, and I strive to have that. I'm blessed to have literal fathers that are spiritual fathers in the Lord, but I know that's rare. And so what do you do if you're looking for that? I, I would encourage you, you always need the peer discipleship, but then initiate find somebody that you respect in God, take them out to lunch, buy their lunch, and show up with a notepad and say, hey, would you be up for meeting with me? Because I wanna learn just from your life and what what it means to follow God. I I can't promise you they'll say yes, and you need to go with no expectation, but I'll, I'll just say for my own sake, when people have done that, it is a joy to meet with them and to pour in whatever I have if they're showing up with spiritual hunger and if I have something to give. So you initiate that, um, especially if you feel the need for that. Don't wait for them to initiate with you, but you go to them. Okay, so this is, what's going on here? This is life on life discipleship. So let's, let's get back into our text. You know, we've got this cosmic story of God. We've got these disciples that Jesus have called. But if, if we read 16 and 17, we notice that a few things have gone wrong. This comforts me in a weird kind of way, actually, because I, I can pick up on the fact that it was just as messy for Jesus as it is for us. How many disciples are here? 11. How many disciples did Jesus call? 12. What happened? One of his disciples betrayed him and killed him, basically. Now, I know you might complain about your bad life group, but I'm not sure any of you have ever had that happen. (laughs) So just as this can be messy and even painful for us, there's a vulnerability of opening ourselves up to other people. It was messy and painful for Jesus. Like, he is not naive to the fact that we are broken people. He gets it and he still chooses to move through us. I don't understand it. And it's not just Judas that is the problem here. Like, did you catch this detail that some worshiped, but some doubted when they were looking at the resurrected Jesus? I I understand, like doubt is very common. Many people have had spiritual doubt, but can you imagine you're looking at Jesus in his resurrected form and you're still doubting? Like you may feel guilty, but they should feel more guilty. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) They are doubting when they're looking at him. I mean, these disciples, up until this point, they did not understand the purposes of God. They still thought Jesus was going to start a political movement and they were going to have positions of power. They did not understand the cross. They abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need. Peter, his best disciple, denied Jesus to his face as Jesus is being killed. These are not rock stars. These are ordinary people like you and like me. And I take a lot of comfort from this because when I read the story of Jesus's disciples, I see messy people like us. And let this be a pastoral message for us this morning that as you walk in the door, whatever guilt, whatever shame you brought in with you, Jesus still is inviting you to follow him. Jesus still is calling you to be his disciple. Maybe you're here, maybe something last night, Maybe you got in a fight with your spouse on the way over to church. Don't look over at him right now. Maybe something like that. I don't know if I could go just person to person. I bet there is some deep pain, deep insecurities that almost every single one of us carries where we are tempted to say, this is a cool story, Drew, but it's not for me because of what I've done. But when I read this, I see people who've done those same things and maybe even worse, and they were still invited to follow Jesus. And when I read the Great Commission, when I think of life on life discipleship, what I don't think of is people who have it all together. But I think of people that are committed to keep showing up because what did those disciples do? They went to the mountain even after they blew it. And that's what he's inviting us to this morning. Will we come back to the mountain even after we've blown it? Will we keep showing up? Will we keep meeting with each other? Will we keep being vulnerable? Will we keep confessing? because it's in that consistency of not quitting, but pressing into Jesus. Somehow in the midst of all that, that's where God works his transformation. And if you were to read the gospel of Acts, you would see these same broken people become the heroes of the faith by the work of the Holy Spirit as they meet together in life on life community. Amen. Amen. Let's keep going in our text. I wanna read verse 18. These are the first words of Jesus in the great commission. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think this is a really cool way to kick off the Great Commission. In fact, authority is a key topic for Matthew in his gospel. Jesus teaches with authority, Matthew 7, 29. Matthew 8, 9, the centurion, a Gentile enemy of God, recognizes Jesus as being a man who has authority. Matthew 9, 6, Jesus' miracles validate his authority. Matthew 10, 1, Jesus sends the 12 out with authority. Authority is a big part of the story. But then you get to this verse, Matthew 21, 7, where the Pharisees challenge Jesus and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And I was thinking about this in the context of discipleship because I believe this is a central question for each one of us. Who is our authority? And maybe another way of saying this is at the heart of disciple making and discipleship is the question, what authority system do we live within? Do we believe that Jesus has the authority and we are aligning our lives under him and his purposes and following him? Or are we living under the authority of the world around us? Because let me tell you, there is no neutral option with this. You realize that you are being shaped by the people around you constantly. And that's like just basic sociological fact. There's no way to escape it. It's how God designed you. God made you to be influenced by the people around you. And you cannot escape that. And we live in a world that is increasingly becoming secular. So how do we follow Jesus when we live in a society that proclaims a different authority? How do we submit to his authority? And actually the more you study it, it gets a bit sober, you know, cause you're like, man, God, if I'm being shaped by the world around me, if every time I leave my house, I'm in my workplace under a different authority system, I'm shopping under a different authority system, any place I go online, I'm under a different authority system. How on earth do I remain faithful to Jesus when there's competing messages for authority that are bombarding me constantly? I know I'm not called to leave this world. So God, how do I stay faithful in this world? I was thinking about this a few years ago and I had this funny dad moment with my daughter, the one who turned 12 yesterday. I'm a pretty diehard football fan. And I married a woman from Australia and they don't value American football as much down there for some reason. And she does not know football. She still, after being married to me all these years, I don't think understands the game of American football. She like nods and follows along kind of. And up until a couple of years ago, every one of my children had taken on after their mother. They they would come sit by me, but it was the novelty of sitting by their dad, not the love of the sport. Until one fateful afternoon. <laughs> In college, I follow Baylor, and this year they were having a good year, and my daughter came and sat by me, and she starts asking me about the game. Like this was not planned. I think she just wanted to be by me, but she was bored, so I explained the game to her, and by the second quarter, like she understood. And then we get into the third quarter, and she's asking questions about the strategy and the implications and all this other kind of stuff. And then by the fourth quarter, she is now a football fan. And this turned out to be an amazing game. It was back and forth, like huge implications of who won. And then the game goes to overtime. So now she's hooked. And it's, you know, it's a shootout. It's a back and forth overtime. And it got to this one play where this is a do or die moment in the game. And if we score, we win. If we don't, we lose. I am freaking out inside. And then I look over at my daughter who was not a football fan four hours ago, and she has a blanket over her head because she's so nervous she can't bear to watch. <laughs> so I am just laughing on the inside while crying because I'm nervous. And I'm like, can I join you in your pillow fort? You know, but... I'm like, kid, you didn't even know football four hours ago. What gives you the right to have a blanket over your head? You know how much bad football I've watched in my life? Like I get the blanket, you endure, you know? We won, turned out to be a great experience. But I was thinking about that story because I was thinking my daughter did not make the rational choice that morning to become a football fan. What happened to her? She was shaped by her surrounding community. Her loves were shaped. She did not choose Baylor out of all the college teams to follow. It was the values of the people around her that transformed her to what she now loves. I don't know that she loves football, but you know, whatever you want to say there. And if you can think, like if you live in Waco, every billboard's Baylor. You talk to your classmates, they talk about the Baylor game. You come home and you watch, and what's your dad doing? He's watching Baylor, right? It's just a matter of time until it gets you. Baylor football is in the water in Waco, Texas, Now, it's a really funny story when you think about football, but it's a little more serious when you ask the question, what else is in the water in Waco, Texas? What other values are in our community? What other authority systems are we coming other? What other messages are being preached to us that we are responding to? You tracking with me? Parents, I mean, think of what a big deal that is for us. Our kids, their loves and their passions are being shaped by the culture around them. If you're not a parent... Think about yourself. What's being formed inside of you and who is the authority that is forming that in you? It's a sobering question. So how do you follow God in a world like that? I'm gonna go back into a football illustration. I'm so sorry if you're not a football fan, but I'm really not. Professional football, I'm a diehard Chiefs fan. Now, if you're wondering, they are the original team from Dallas, 1960s, look it up. And they're also having a really great few years. So I'm so sorry for my cowboy friends. (laughs) not really. Uh, so I'm a Hard Chiefs fan. And if you were to come to the Sedman house, you would find that every single one of my children are also Die Hard Chiefs fan. So how am I raising them as aliens and strangers in a crooked and depraved generation when they are surrounded by competing messages? How are they living according to a different way? You want to know the answer? It's very simple. The culture of my family is stronger than the culture of my city. What is life on life discipleship? Life on life discipleship is us creating a community of believers where the culture of our spiritual family is stronger than the culture of our city. We are creating a community of believers. where We are under the authority of Jesus who has all the authority and we are invested in each other's lives. And so we are being formed into his image. And ultimately that culture that we have in Christ is stronger than the culture of the world around us. And in fact, it gives us something. Remember that girl from Miami who walked by the door. We live in a world where people are craving something real. And because we are those submitted to Christ, because the culture of our family is stronger than the culture of our city, people can walk by our doors and they walk in because we have something different. What is life on life discipleship? It's us investing in one another, but the spirit of God is filling our room and we're submitted to his authority and not our own. And it takes one another for us to live that out. Amen. And I believe that's at the core and I believe that's why it's such a timely word for us today. Now, then we get into the the, the core of the great commission of what Jesus commands us to. If we read verse 19 through 20 says this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'll I'll read the last verse here in a moment. And you know, I've been unpacking that this whole time and it's kind of a funny discipleship talk where the majority of what I'm sharing is not these core commands. But I'm doing that on purpose this morning because I'm wanting us to get a glimpse of what Jesus is calling us into. And if we get a glimpse of what he's calling us into, I think we'll have the solution for how that's supposed to be fleshed out in our lives. My goal for you this morning is to walk out of here with a commitment that I need life on life discipleship that I need a community of two or three other people in my life, challenging me, spurring me on. What I can't possibly answer for you is how that's supposed to look for each one of you. Now, Jesus' core commands here, they, they give us some clues. What's he calling us to do? To make disciples, what we've been talking about this whole morning. How do we do it? Well, it's as we are going. And if you look in Greek, it's, it's in the participle form. As we are going, I don't think he's inviting us to go start a lot of new meetings. I think he's calling us to be intentional with the way that we already live. As you are going, you make disciples. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If I had all the time in the world, I'd do a whole teaching on baptism. It's one of my favorite topics. But I think for our purposes this morning, what is this referring to? It means we're dying to who we used to be. We're being born again into who God's called us to be. We're being, we are dying to that old way of authority and we're being born into a new way of living under the authority of Jesus. And then lastly, we are teaching people to obey all that he has commanded us to do. Notice that the great commission and discipleship is not teaching people lots of knowledge, but it's teaching people to be faithful to what they already know. I found for me when it comes to discipleship, it's not that I need to go learn more things, though I'm a student, I love to learn. But my core problem is that I'm not being faithful with what I already know to do. That's why I need you. We need together to walk out. We need together to follow Jesus, to live life so that what he's called us to do is realized in our daily lives. So let me end with this last thought. How do we as overwhelmed, tired people embrace the command of God to life on life disciple making? And I think the answer is in our last verse here. I want to read it to us. If the first words of the Great Commission, Jesus says, I have all authority. The last words he says to us are, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is revealed in chapter one before he is born as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is revealed to the church as God with us. The power of discipleship is not you or me. The power of discipleship is that God is with us. And what I found in life is that even if I am tired and overwhelmed and there is very little that I am bringing to the equation, that does not change the promise of God to me that he is with me. Do you realize that at your most tired moment, God is still with you? Do you realize when you feel like life is completely out of control, that God is still with you? That he is just as committed to you in that moment that he was at your baptism than he was when you were at world mandate with your hands lifted high saying, I'll go anywhere. God is committed to you. You may have forgotten. You may have wandered, but he has not. I have learned that I need to trust the faithfulness of God to me a whole lot more than I trust my faithfulness back to him. And it's actually his faithfulness to me that allows me to turn around and respond with faithfulness to him. It's his love for me that allows me to be caught up into his love. It's his pursuit of me that allows me to turn around and drop my nets and follow Jesus. Life on life discipleship, there is a part of this That is us making a commitment to say, I'm gonna open up my life to fellow believers and I'm gonna show up. But the power of life on life discipleship is not what we do for each other. The power of life on life discipleship is the fact that God is present in our midst. It's Joe and I having a phone call, being vulnerable, me having no answers for him, him having no answers for me, situations in our life, staying unresolved, both of us being tired, not knowing what to do. And God is present in the room with us in that moment. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have reached moments where I am stuck. I don't know what to do. I don't have a lot to offer, but I kept showing up. And somehow, typically not in some kind of miracle moment, but retrospectively looking back, I recognize that God worked a solution for me. God brought the breakthrough for me, not in a way that I can take credit for, not because I planned it out, not because the life group discussion, not because somebody gave me a wise word, but simply because God was faithful to me. He's with me what would it look like for us to trust the faithfulness of God being with us more than we trust our own faithfulness back to God? It's so freeing. You keep showing up. And if you blow it, get back up, confess, keep showing up. Don't stop. Keep coming back to the mountain like we see in the example of these disciples. And somewhere in that, by us continuing to show up, we're gonna discover that God is present And God is the one bringing about the change. Amen? Let's take a stand. Take a stand. (laughs) That's a funny way of saying that. Uh, Let's stand up. I guess you can take a stand on it. Let's let's stand up. Worship team, why don't you come up to the front? And as always, we want to end our time by praying over each other. And I I don't ever want to minimize the power of prayer. So if you're a life group leader, a prophetic team, why don't you come on up to the front? You know, if you take what we're talking about today, God is present. And I'm calling you to kind of more long-term life-on-life discipleship relationships, but he's also present right now in this moment. You coming up for prayer, God is present. Not because the person up here is gonna have like this crazy word that changes everything, maybe, but simply because the Holy Spirit is here in this room. And I wanna challenge as we go into this time of, um, this last song of worship and the last few minutes here, um, don't underestimate what God can do in eight minutes. And if you have a need this morning, don't leave. If you're overwhelmed this morning and you feel like I have nothing to offer, don't, don't leave without getting the chance to have somebody pray over you. Because uh, God's here, he's with us and he's pursuing you and he's wanting to, to work a transformation in your life. Amen. So I wanna invite a couple different people up to the front I'm gonna pray for us here in a moment and we'll turn it over to our worship team. But a few different groups of people that I'd love to pray with this morning is first of all, if you're out there and you just feel like, okay, I'm doing this stuff, but I feel dry. I don't feel like anything's happening. We just wanna pray for you to be encouraged this morning, to keep showing up, to have strength to keep showing up. And I don't think God would want you to hear a message of guilt this morning. I think what God would want you to hear is a pat on the shoulder and say, way to go, keep pressing in. Second group I wanna pray for is maybe you feel like the disciples where you've abandoned Jesus in some way. Maybe you're just coming to church for the first time in a long time. Maybe you've never even made a decision for Christ. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you know is holding you far from God. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to invite you to come, either tell the person you're with, come up to the front. We wanna pray with you about what it looks like for you to say yes to Jesus in a fresh way. And then lastly, if you're here and you have need, whether it's physical need, wanna pray for healing, financial need, praying for provision, something going on relationally, even if it has nothing to do with this message, I just think every time we gather as the people of God, we wanna have faith that God is here and he wants to meet with us, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you're with us. Lord, as your people, we confess that is true. And Lord, whether we feel it emotionally this morning or not, we thank you that you are greater than what we feel. You're greater than the circumstances of our life and you are present, you are near, you are alive, you are active. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that feels tired and overwhelmed. I pray this morning that by the Holy Spirit, you would inject faith and hope into their hearts again, not in their strength or their capacity, but in your power and in your presence. I pray for every person in this house, God, where they've wandered in some way in their heart. They feel distracted. Maybe it's the weight of sin. Maybe it's the weight of pain in this life. Lord, I praise you. And I thank you that you are the healer. You are the restorer. You are the forgiver. And Lord, together as your people, it's our heart cry. God, we want to be with you. Lord, we want to be aware of your presence and we want to follow you. So Lord, be lifted up in this place. In Jesus' name. So just come on down if you want prayer. We're going to worship Jesus together.